I promised you a very special speaker this morning. <laughs> I promised you a very famous preacher. And uh, while Charles Haddon Spurgeon cannot be with us this morning, for obvious reasons, uh, his message can. And without a question this morning, Charles Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers that has ever lived. Let me just for, this, for a few minutes this morning share just a few snippets about him, about his history and about his life before we get into the message this morning. Charles Spurgeon died at the age of 57, so just three years older than I am right now. And by that time, he had preached for 38 years at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England. He preached over 600 times before he was 20 years old. His sermons sold about 20,000 copies a week and were translated into 20 different languages. The collected sermons of Charles Spurgeon fill 63 volumes, equivalent to the 27-volume ninth edition of the Encyclopedia Britannica, and they stand today as the largest set of books by a single author in the history of Christianity. Charles Spurgeon had a capacity for work and ministry which must surely be unrivaled. He once described his workload like this. He said, quote, No one living knows the toil and care I have to bear. I have to look after the orphanage. I have charge of a church with 4,000 members. Sometimes there are marriages and burials to be undertaken. There is the weekly sermon to be revised, the sword and the trowel to be edited. That was a paper that he published. And besides all that, a weekly average of 500 letters to be answered. This, however, is only half my duty, for there are innumerable churches established by friends with the affairs of which I am closely connected, to say nothing of the cases of difficulty which are constantly being referred to me. End quote. At his 50th birthday party, a list of 66 organizations and associations uh, was read that he had founded and conducted. There was a fellow there by the name of Lord Shaftesbury, and Lord Shaftesbury said, quote, This list of associations instituted by his genius, superintended by his care, were more than enough to occupy the minds and hearts of 50 ordinary men. Spurgeon typically read six substantial books a week. That's one a day if you're doing the math. And the sickening thing about it is he could remember what he read and where to find it. He produced more than 140 books of his own. That in addition to the sermon output that we've already discussed. Books like The Treasury of David, which was 20 years in the making. Morning and Evening, Commenting on Commentaries, John Plowman's Talk, and our own hymn books. Spurgeon often worked 18 hours in a day. He had an attitude toward sacrificial labor that would not really fly much in today's society. He said, quote, if by excessive labor we die before reaching the average age of man, worn out in the master's service, then glory be to God. We shall have so much less of earth and so much more of heaven. He said it is our duty and our privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot it is to be consumed. Spurgeon was a Bible preacher. He believed the Bible to be the word of God. The truth that drove his entire preaching ministry was biblical truth. He would hold up his Bible and he would say, these words are God's. Thou book of vast authority. Thou art a proclamation from the emperor of heaven. Far be it from me to exercise my reason in contradicting thee. This is the book untainted by any error. Pure, unalloyed, perfect truth. Why? Because God wrote it. Unquote. And so I say to you this morning that by any measure you wish to apply, 
Charles Haddon Spurgeon was one of the greatest preachers who has ever lived. Now, we do not know what was happening here at what is now Friendship Bible Church on the morning of October 6, 1861. It was here. And as a matter of fact, we believe it was Disciples Church at the time, and we believe that it was meeting that very day in this very building. At least one source that we have indicates this building was completed in 1860. And so on that morning, this church was gathered here. And on that morning, while they met, our church ancestors, and opened the word here, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, England, Charles Spurgeon entered the pulpit and preached this message entitled, God's first words to the first sinner. And so I encourage you to listen. Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there's one under this chair in front of you somewhere. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, 
The man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Heavenly Father, Lord God, I pray this morning that as we look at this old, old sermon, a sermon that was first preached so very, very long ago, I pray, Father, you'd bless it once again. And I pray, Father, you'd give it power once again. And I pray you'd speak to our hearts today through these words once again. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is the question that God asked in verse number 9. Where are you at? And I doubt that I need to spend a whole lot of time, do I, in explaining what had led up to that question. You see, man had sinned. Man had sinned against God. And it's interesting, is it not, to see how that sin affected his heart. For one thing, he was now totally alienated from God because of his sin. Shouldn't Adam have been the one? Shouldn't he have been the one to have gone looking for God? Shouldn't he have gone through the garden crying for his God, my God, my God, I have sinned against you. Where are you? I confess your justice. I beg your mercy. I have done the one thing you commanded me not to do. I have eaten of the fruit you commanded me not to eat. Where are you, God? But instead, Adam runs. Adam flees from God. The sinner doesn't come to God. God comes to him. It is not, my God, where are you? But the first cry in the garden is the cry of grace. Sinner, where are you? It's a wonderful distinction, is it not? God comes to man. Man seeks not his God. And so in this amazing question, we see the alienation of the human heart from God so that man shuns his maker and does not desire fellowship with him. That's one of the results. One of the results of that first sin, but it's not the only. We also see here revealed the folly which sin caused in the heart of man. Sin made man a fool. I mean, he was once in God's image, right? Wise. And now, since the trail of the serpent has passed over his nature, he has become an arrogant fool. For who but a fool would think he could cover the nakedness of his sin with fig leaves? Who but a fool would think that he could hide from the omniscient Jehovah behind a tree? Didn't Adam know God fills all space? Didn't Adam know God dwells everywhere, that from his highest heaven to the deepest hell, there is nothing that is hid from his understanding, and yet such a fool has he become that he hopes to escape from God and make the trees of the garden a cover from the very eyes of God. Isn't it so with each one of us? Sin makes us into fools. We repeat Adam's foolishness every day when we seek to hide sin from our view. And from the view of others, and then think that it must therefore be hidden from God. We repeat Adam's foolishness when we're more afraid of the gaze of men than of the searching of the Eternal One. When because the sin is secret and has not become known, when we can go to our beds with the black mark upon us but hidden from view, man doesn't see it, therefore God doesn't perceive it. We become fools. Sin had made Adam think he could flee from God. It made Adam forget that if he ascends into heaven, God is there. If he makes his bed in hell, God is there. 
If he says, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Sin made him a fool. But now, the Lord comes forth to Adam here in the garden, and he, he cries out to him. He says, Adam, where are you? Now think about it. There's two amazing, wonderful doctrinal truths in that particular little short sentence. First of all, it showed that Adam was lost. Did it not? That's a tremendous doctrinal truth, one we need to understand. God would not have come looking for him otherwise. Until we have lost a thing, we don't ask where it is. But when God said, Adam, where are you? It was the voice of a shepherd inquiring for his lost sheep. It was, it was the cry of a loving parent asking for his child that has run away from him. Where are you? Only three little words. Where are you? Simple little sentence. But they contain the dread doctrine of our lost estate. You see, when God asks, where are you, man must be lost. When God himself inquires where he is, he must be lost in a more awful sense than you and I have as yet fully known. But second, there was also mercy in that question, was there not? For the question showed God intended to have mercy upon man, or else he would have just simply allowed him to remain lost and would not have said, where are you? Men don't look for what they don't value. Think of the gospel sermon found in those three little divine words as they penetrated the dense part of the thicket and reached the tingling ears of the fugitives. Where are you? Your God is not willing to lose you. He has come forth to seek you. Just as one of these days, he means to come forth in the person of his son, not only to seek, but to save that which was lost. Where are you, Adam? Had God meant to destroy mankind, he would have hurled his thunderbolt. He would have burned up the trees. He would have let the ashes of the sinner lie beneath his angry gaze. He would have rushed in the whirlwind and in the storm. And tearing up the cedars and the pomegranates by their roots, he would have said, let hell open before you be swallowed up forever. But he didn't do that. He loves man. He cares for man. And therefore he asks Adam, where are you? Where are you? Well, in the time that remains this morning, I would like for us to think about that particular question. And I want us to think about it in five different ways. Five different ways. There might be other ways we could look at that question, but we're going to look at five. Number one, God might have asked the question to arouse Adam. Where are you? He might have been trying to arouse him or to wake him up. Do you know what sin does? Do you know what sin does? It numbs the conscience. It drugs the mind. So that after sin, man is not as capable of understanding his danger as he would have been without it. Sin is a poison which kills conscience painlessly. Men die by sin as men die when frozen to death upon the Alps. They die in a sleep. And they sleep. And they sleep. And they sleep. Until death closes the scene and in hell they awaken torments. And so one of the first works of divine grace in the heart of a man is to put aside this sleep. To startle him from his lethargy. To make him open his eyes and discover his danger. One of the first deeds of the good physician is to put sensibility into our flesh. It has become cold, dead, mortified. And so I think this question from the Lord was intended to set Adam thinking. To arouse him from his sleep. To wake him up. Adam, where are you? He had to have perceived in some degree into what, uh, what a state his sin had brought him. But 
that this question was meant to stir the depths of his spirit and wake him up to such a sense of danger that he would labor to escape from the wrath to come at him. Where are you? Where are you? Look at yourself now. You are naked. You are a stranger to your God, dreading the very presence of your maker, miserable and undone. Adam, where are you? With a hard heart, with a rebellious will, fallen. Fallen. Fallen from your highest state. Adam, where are you? Lost. Lost to your God. Lost to happiness. Lost to peace. Lost in time. Lost in eternity. And so in the same way, we might ask this morning to those who are here today, where are you? Where are you? I wish I had words this morning that would stir up some of you who need to answer that question for yourself. Where are you this morning? If you are here this morning as one who has never repented of your sins. If you are here this morning as one who has never believed in Christ, then let me tell you where you are. You are a stranger from your God. Isn't it true that you seldom think of him? That you can go days and weeks without a mention of his name? Except perhaps in some trivial language or a curse word or an expletive. You cannot live without a friend, but you can live without your God. You eat, you drink, you're satisfied. The world is enough for you. It's momentary pleasures satisfy your spirit. And if you saw God here, you would flee from him. Because you are an enemy to him. And I ask you, is this the right case for a creature to be in? Hear the question this morning. Let it arouse you. Let it wake you up. Where are you? Must not that creature be in a very pitiable position who is afraid of his creator? You were made to glorify him. You were made to rejoice in his presence and to delight in his goodness. But it seems you love not the very food you meant to sustain you. Where are you? Oh, God, help the lost among us to see where they are. Open their eyes. Let the questions startle them. Let them wake up. See where they are. Where are you? Your life is frail. You are here one moment and the next you are gone. You sit here today, but before another week has passed, you may be howling in another world. Where are you, my friend? Where are you? Unpardoned. And yet a dying man, condemned. Yet going carelessly towards destruction. Covered with sin, yet speeding to your judge's dread tribunal. Lost here, yet hurrying on each moment. Bearing you on eagle's wings to the place. Where you shall be eternally lost. It's hard, is it not, to bring ourselves to know ourselves. If a man's a little bit sick, he runs, runs to seek his doctor. He wants to know his physical state. But when it comes to our spiritual health and to spiritual things, a man will say, peace, peace, live well enough alone. I don't want to hear about that. If we hear that our finances are at all in jeopardy, we're going to spend some toilsome days and wearisome nights. But, oh, our souls. We play with them as if they were worthless. Is it so with you? Is your soul so worthless to you that you can afford to lose it? Because you will not wake up from your sleep and stop your dream. Let God's question wake you up this morning. Let it arouse your sleeping heart. Where are you? Because if you are without Christ today, then you are lost, you are ruined, you are undone. Oh, that you would wake up. Well, let's look at a second way. A second way in which we might consider that particular question. Yes, God might have asked that question to arouse Adam. He also might have asked that question to convict Adam. 
convict him. In other words, perhaps God was simply trying to get Adam to see just how sinful his sinfulness really was. Where are you, Adam? I made you in my own image. I made you a little lower than the angels. I made you to have dominion over the works of my hands. I put all things under your feet, the fowl of the air and the fish of the sea and whatever passes through the depths of the sea. I gave this whole garden of delights to be your home. I honored you with my presence. I thought of your welfare. The moon did not hurt you by night. The sun did not smite you by day. I tempered the winds for you. I clothed the trees with fruit for your nourishment. I made all things minister to your happiness. And now in spite of all that, where are you? I asked of you but one thing. That you would not touch one tree which I had reserved for myself. Where are you? Where are you, Adam? Are you now become a thief, a rebel, a traitor? Have you sinned? Oh, Adam, where are you? And in like manner, some today need to answer the same question. Perhaps some in this very room. Where are you? To many of us here, the Lord might say, I gave you a godly mother who kept over you in your childhood. I gave you a holy father who longed for your conversion. I gave you the gifts of providence you have never wanted for a meal. I clothed you. I gave you comfort in life. I healed you from sickness. I overlooked 10,000 follies. My mercies like a river have flown to you. When you opened your eyes in the morning, it was to look upon my goodness. And until the last moment of the night, I was your helper. I have covered you with my feathers. Under my wings have you trusted. And now, where are you? Have you forgotten my commandments? Abhorred my person? Broken my laws? Rejected my son? Are you content to trust your own works, but not to believe in my beloved son, the Savior of the world? Where are you? Where are you? After all God's goodness... Still a sinner. The serpent said you would be a god, Adam. Is it so? Where is your boasted knowledge? Where are the honors? Where are the vast attainments that rebellion would bring to you? Instead of the clothing of angels, you're naked. Instead of glory, you have shame. Instead of preferment, you have disgrace. And to us, sin says, I'll give you pleasure. And some have had it. But what of the pain that followed the pleasure? Sin gave you its cup full of mixed wine. But what of the red eyes and the woe? Sin said to you, I will make you great. But what has it done for you? Drunkard, what has it done for you? Given you rags of poverty, adulterer, fornicator, what has it done for you? Filled your flesh with leprosy and your soul with agony. Thief, cheat. What has it done for you? Disgraced you and branded you before the eyes of men. Sinner in secret. Polite sinner. What has it done for you? Soured your sweets. Poisoned all your joys. Where are you? Where are you? In every case, sin has been a curse. Without exception, rebellion, if it has not yet brought its due deserts, will do so. And sinners shall be filled with their own Oh, I would to God this morning that not only would God awaken the sinner, but convict him as well. It's easier to make a man start in his sleep than to make him rise and burn the loathsome bed on which he slumbered. And if that is what the sinner must do, 
And that is what the sinner will do if God is at work in him. He will wake up and he will find himself lost. Conviction will give him the consciousness that he has destroyed himself. And then he will hate the sins he loved before. He will flee from his false refuges, forsake his joys, and seek to find a lasting salvation where alone it can be found. In the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that brings me to a third way. A third way in which we may regard the question of the text. The Lord God called to Adam and he said to him, where are you? Number three, God might have asked that question to show his sorrow. His sorrow at man's lost estate. Some have even ventured to translate the Hebrew of that particular verse as, alas for you. Alas for you. It is as if God uttered the words of the prophet Hosea when he said, how can I give you up? How can I utterly destroy you? My heart is broken for you. Where are you, my poor Adam? You once talked with me, but you have now fled from me. You were happy once. What are you now? Naked and poor and miserable. You were once in my image, glorious, immortal, and blessed. Where are you now, poor Adam? My image is marred in you. Your own father's face is taken away, and you have made yourself earthy. Sensual, devilish. Where are you now, Adam? Think how God must have felt for Adam. The Bible says we have a God who feels. He describes himself in human language as having a father's heart. And all the tenderness of a mother's heart. And just as a father cries over a rebellious son, so does the eternal father say, poor Adam, where are you? I wonder, is there even one here this morning who has been awakened by that question? Is there even one here this morning who has been convicted of the reality of your sinfulness by the question? If so, then my friend, the very next thing you must know is how much God cares. How much God cares about your condition. How much sorrow he feels for your lost state. See, God loves you. And to prove how he loves you, in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, he comes to you and he cries, as I live, I have no pleasure in the death of him who dies, but I'd rather that he would turn unto me and live. Listen, my friend, don't let Satan deceive you this morning. Don't let him tell you that God is hard, that he is unkind, that he is unwilling to forgive. Try him. Try him. Come just as you are and hear once again the Lord's sorrowful cry as it rings through the trees of Eden. Adam, poor Adam, my own creature, where are you? Well, there's a fourth way. A fourth way in which one might consider this question. He might have asked the question to wake Adam up. He might have asked the question to convict Adam of his sin. He might have asked the question to show the great sorrow he felt over Adam's sin. And number four, God might have asked the question because he was seeking Because he was seeking him. Adam, where are you? Wherever you are, Adam, I will look for you till the eyes of my pity see you. I will follow you till the hands of my mercy reach you. And I will still hold you till I bring you back to myself and reconcile you to my heart. Are you listening to that this morning, my friend? Because if you've been able to follow the first three points of this sermon, you need to hear this fourth part. If you have been awakened, if you have been convicted, if you have some longings toward God, then the Lord has come forth this morning to seek you. To seek you. What a thought that is. That when God comes forth to seek his chosen, he knows exactly where they are. 
And he never misses them. And though they may have wandered far, far away, it is not too far for him. You may have gone to the very gates of hell. You may have one foot through the gate, and the Lord can find you even there. You may have so sinned that you think yourself hopeless, and everybody who knows you may have given you up too, but God is looking for you, and he can find you wherever you might be. Oh, hear the voice of God for it speaking to you. Where are you? I am looking for you. But Lord, you say, you don't know what a wretch I am. Yes, I do, he says. I do know you. Though I asked you the question, where are you? It was that you might know where you are. I knew well enough. Where are you? But Lord, I have been the chief of sinners. None can have so aggravated their guilt guilt as I have. It matters not where you may be. I have come to save you. But I have sinned beyond all hope. Yes, but I have come to give hope to hopeless sinners. You see, there is not a sinner here, conscious of his lost estate, who can be in a position out of which he cannot be brought. If we think of the vilest of the vile, the worst of the worst, if we think of those with master's degrees in the devil's synagogue, even those who have become experts in sin, still if with tearful eyes they look alone to the wounds of him who shed his blood for sinners, if they will but call upon the name of the Savior, if they will only believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. I wish I could preach better. I wish we all could hear better. But may the Lord speak this morning. And may he say to somebody who needs to hear it today. Soul, your hour is come. I will pluck you this day out of the horrible pit. Out of the miry clay. At this day, at this very hour, I will set your feet upon a rock. I will put a new song into your mouth. I will establish your goings. How blessed would be the name of the Lord if that were to happen today. Well, lastly, we dare not ignore the fact that this text may be used and must be used in one final sense. To those who reject the text as the voice of awakening and conviction, to those who despise it as the voice of mercy sorrowing over them or as the voice of goodness seeking them, it comes in one final way. It is the voice of justice summoning them. Adam had fled, but God must have him come to judgment. Where are you, Adam? Come here. I must judge you. Sin cannot and will not go unpunished. Come. Bring your guilty spouse with you. Come here. I have questions for you. I must hear how you plead. I must pronounce your sentence. For though there was much of pity in the question, there was something of severity too. Adam, where are you? Come. Come to be judged. Today, you hear not that cry. It is mercifully postponed, isn't it? But you'll hear it soon. You'll hear it for the first time like mutterings of thunder when the storm begins. When sickness casts you on your bed. And death looks through his bony eyes upon you and touches you with his ghastly hand and says... Prepare to meet your God. You may put off the question today, but you will have to deal with it then. 
Then shall your bones be as a jelly, your ribs shall quake, your very heart shall melt like wax, you shall contend with the pains of sickness or disease. Oh, but there shall be a direr pain than these, for you shall have to look on death. But even death shall not be the most terrible of all your terrors, for you shall see behind death the judgment and the doom. And then you'll hear it when the room is silent. Voices of wife and children are hushed. When only the clock is ticking, you shall hear the steps of God coming to you in the evening tide of your life and saying to you, where are you? Where are you? Now you shall meet me. Gird up your loins. No more invitations of mercy for you. No more days of mercy. No more warnings from the minister. Now you shall meet me face to face. Where are you? Can you brag and boast now when your nerves have become roads for the hot feet of pain to travel on? Your strength is gone and fled and you are as a candle ready to die out. Where now are your oaths? Where now are your merrymakings and your jests? Where are you now? You may toss and you may turn. But you will not be able to escape the question. You'll try to look back to this life, but you'll be compelled to look forward to the life or the death to come. And still will the Lord whisper in your ears, where are you? Then shall come that last struggle when the strong man shall be bowed, when the bright and glittering eyes shall be covered over with film, the tongue shall cleave to the roof of the mouth, the hands shall lie with no strength on the bed, and the feet shall no more be able to support the body, when the pulse shall fail and the clammy death sweat shall stand upon the brow, and in those last moments there will still be heard that awful voice rising with the gathering storm till it reaches the full grandeur of the awful tempest, where are you? You're in the Jordan without God. You're nearing the grave without hope. You're dying, but there is no Christ to help you. You're launching upon eternity, but there is no hope of eternal salvation. It is over. And the last pang has passed. And the thread is snapped that bound the spirit to the body. And you are gone into another world. And the question follows you, where are you? And then hark the day of judgment and the day of thunder has arrived and the cry rings forth once more and that very ear shall hear it that now listens to me. And then the great white throne judgment and those very eyes shall see it that now gaze on me. And standing alone before God's judgment bar that heart shall quail then which moves not now. And then comes your own personal trial. And oh, I have no means of describing it. I could not give even the faintest picture of what it will be like to hear the words, I was hungry and you gave me no meat. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. Inasmuch as you did it not unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Listen. My friends, hear the word of the Lord. I pray that each of you would hear it for yourselves. I have not talked to you this morning of dreams. You know they are realities. And if you know it not now, you shall know it before long. Oh, I beseech you today by the blood of him who died for sinners. And what stronger argument can I use? Will you not think of the question today? Where are you? And oh, I pray God would show you where you are. I pray you would hear the bemoaning voice of God as pityingly he weeps over you. 
Seek his face, for he seeks you. And then you won't need to dread to hear him say at the last, where are you? You'll be able to say, here I am. I have washed my robes. I've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And Father, I am here waiting to dwell in your presence forever and ever. Oh, that I could plead with you this morning as a man pleads for his life. Would that these lips of clay were lips of fire, and this tongue no more of flesh but a live coal taken with the tongs from off the altar. Oh, for words that would burn their way into your souls, oh sinner. Why will you die? Why will you perish? Eternity is an awful thing, and an angry God is a dreadful thing, and to be judged and condemned, what tongue can tell for? Escape for your life. Look not behind you. Stay not in all the plain. Escape to Mount Calvary, lest you be consumed. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust him alone with your soul. Trust him now. And you shall be saved.